Dr. Coates, what possessed you to write this book about the relationship between art and democracy over more than two millennia over time? Why this book at this time? Well, I would say some of writing David's sling had to do with explaining myself and coming up with a rationale for why an art historian has a significant perspective on contemporary foreign policy and national security challenges. And what I've always believed is art history is simply a specialized kind of history, that you, you are using objects the way other disciplines use text to understand the past, and that if we really want to spread freedom today, if we want to do it in a responsible, enduring way, we really need to understand what the history of freedom is. And that's not just the United States. While the United States is an apex of the story and a, key, a kingpin of the story, it isn't the whole story. So that's why I wanted to write this book. And sometimes, of course, Art is the most compelling reflection of life and culture. And and your book sort of follows the trajectory from our Greco-Roman and Judeo-Christian beginnings through, as you mentioned, America as the apex. Now, you were telling me before we started speaking that printing such a book or publishing such a book as this on art history is a challenge uh, in today's book world. So speak a little bit to that. Well, the, the great news is it's actually much easier now than it was 20 years ago. Um, 20 years ago, a book like David's Sling with 175 color illustrations scattered throughout would have cost thousands of dollars uh, for each copy sold just because the process would have been so laborious. But starting about 10 years ago with the digitization of the publishing business, we've been able to lay out books this way at a really reasonable cost. And what's interesting to me is 20 years ago, when this was so prohibitively expensive, most of the presses that were producing art history went out of business. Um, and so we've had a real dearth of this kind of book. There really haven't been any because, because of the expense and then because nobody was brave enough to actually take up one of these projects now that we have the technology. And the extraordinary thing about Encounter is that they were willing to take the leap. And I think we have a really beautiful product at a, at a very accessible price. Uh, and I'm excited for what that means for publishing the discipline more broadly. Yes, and it's an aesthetically pleasing product as well as an intellectually stimulating one. And, and let's start right from the title of the book, David Sling. Mm -hmm. David Sling has a double meaning. Explain that to our listeners. Well, I think most people are, are familiar with the story from the book of Samuel of David, the, the shepherd, who would go on to be the, the great king of Israel and the founder of the house uh, that produced Jesus Christ. But at the beginning, he was just a simple shepherd. And the Israelites were, were bat battling the Philistines, and the Philistines had a great giant named Goliath who came out and taunted the Israelites and asked them to join in single combat, and they didn't have anyone brave enough to do it, so David came along and said he would. And because he was so pure in his faith in God, and also so ingenious and skillful with his slingshot, he was able to defeat the giant. Um, and so as I was looking at this project, which originally started uh, just focusing on Michelangelo's David, it seemed to me the slingshot uh, by which... David was able to kill Goliath was really the metaphor for democracy. Yeah, and America, of course, as sort of an underdog nation. And, and when you think about 
technology and art and advancement as well, the entrepreneur is the seminal sort of underdog figure. So there really are, there really are a number of primary, secondary, and, and tertiary meanings that one can interpret from the title of your book as personified in David and his sling. Now, looking at sort of the opposite side of the coin, uh, one work that you reference, a, a piece of architecture that you reference and you have a chapter about is the Parthenon. I visited the Parthenon a couple of years ago and was struck by the fact that here was a symbol of democracy by the classical definition of democracy uh, as the height of civilization. And yet today it's surrounded by what is basically a decaying country. And, and that sort of, sort of shows the, the rise and fall and that democracy isn't something that's guaranteed. It needs to be protected. Speak a little bit to the significance of the Parthenon. Oh, absolutely. And the only problem then is you're about 2,300 years late. Um, because the Athenian experiment in democracy was dramatic, it was original, it was the first one, and it failed in about 150 years. So one of the great lessons of David Sling is that freedom is not inevitable. And certainly going back to what you were just saying about the United States not being an unlikely hero, all of these states are. I mean, Athens is a rock, Rome is a swamp, Venice shouldn't exist at all. You know, Holland is underwater. Florence is flat. It's a market town. These are not places that you would assume are going to flourish. But because of the remarkable effects of democracy, and particularly democracy when married to free market principles, which is really central to the Florence, Venice, and Holland chapters, you have this remarkable both economic and creative flowering that allows for the creation of the works of art that each of these chapters study. So I think it's it's certainly not an exclusive an arrangement between freedom and creative genius, but we, we have a wonderful pattern of these over time, uh, which when we trace them, I think gives us a new appreciation for what Western civilization has accomplished. And there's also an element of uh, creative destruction in terms of political systems when you think about the fact that our founders saw the failures of all these systems, including the dangers of democracy, qua democracy, a pure democracy, and chose a Republican form. And so you see that we sort of build on the vestiges of these past civilizations. Now, you obviously highlight nine other pieces of architecture or art uh, as well in your book. What are one or two of the uh, pieces or locations that you'd like to highlight for our listeners? Well, it's a little hard because each one of them was a, was a wonderful learning experience for me, even ones that I had taught and studied for many years because this line of inquiry, the notion that democracy would inspire great art is not very fashionable in the academy right now. <laughs> so none of these works have really been looked at in this context. And uh, one of the ones that might be very surprising to your listeners is St. Mark's in Venice, which most people think of as the Cathedral of Venice. It's, it's nothing of the sort. It's the palace of the duly elected leader, or it's the palace chapel, rather, of the duly elected leader of Venice, the Doge, and it was built as a kind of a treasure box to be the, the manifestation of the wealth that was generated by the remarkable advances in shipping and bookkeeping that were achieved by the Venetian Republic. And then on top of that, they added in wonderful antiquities like the beautiful bronze horses that are over the door to the church 
which were brought back on the Fourth Crusade from Constantinople and became the symbol of, uh, of Venice as the inheritor of the mantle of antiquity in the Middle Ages. And so you have this very physical reminder that Venice was now the new Rome, the new Athens, and was going to, to take that role going forward. An equally un- unexpected one uh, is Monet's Water Lilies from the 1920s. Most people don't think of Monet as a 20th century artist, uh, and certainly not as a particularly political one. But the fact of the matter is the Nymphaeus cycle that's installed in the Orangerie was done very deliberately to celebrate the victory of World War I, and it was a very personal communication between Monet and Georges Clemenceau to, as I said, celebrate the preservation of the Third Republic, and Monet was a very passionate French patriot. So I think there'll be some unexpected stories in there. One of the tensions that I noticed, and sort of when you think about culture more broadly, uh, it's sort of always looming in the background, is the fact that these works of art throughout history have been financed because wealth was created and there was an ability for folks to indulge in the arts and sort of spend into the splendor of these various civilizations. Yet so frequently when you look at the intelligentsia in general and artists in particular, they have such a leftist worldview. So how do you sort of <laughs> how do you sort of tie that to the idea that freedom and prosperity and art go hand in hand, yet the artists who themselves are pure entrepreneurs in reality typically have a worldview so anathema to the system in which they live and create? Well, I actually blame Michelangelo for all of this. Um, It's really his fault. And I don't think he did it on purpose, but he really pioneered the notion of the artist as the independent creator. And it's in many ways ironic because Michelangelo at the same time was a committed patriot. He was a just devout proponent of the Florentine Republic. And I don't think he would have have done what he did with the intent of divorcing artists from participation in free systems uh, in a way that we would consider to be salutary. But uh, that's sort of been the effect. And what's maybe the most interesting case study is Picasso because he's the the last chapter, he's the 10th chapter, and uh, he painted the great Granica in the late 1930s to protest against the, the dramatic Nazi and Franco combined bombing of the Basque town, uh, the terrible slaughter of civilians, which was sort of a test run for the Luftwaffe. But because of advances in communications, rather than just sort of being buried, the event was telegraphed around the world within hours with pictures. So everybody saw the slaughter and the destruction. And Picasso, who was in Paris at the time and had been commissioned by the exiled Republic of Spain to do a a major mural for their World Fair pavilion, and had been struggling with it, said, I have my subject. He said, I'm not generally a political artist, but I want to do this. And he paints the great protest picture, this massive black and white fractured image of destruction. And what's so ironic in Picasso's case is he could see the existential threat of the Nazis. He understood they weren't just trying to take over one state, they were trying to extinguish liberty. But he couldn't see it with the Soviets. He couldn't see it with communism, or he wouldn't see it. Um, And so while on the one hand he was able to embody the resistance to one existential threat of the 20th century, 
on the other, he, he couldn't see the other. Applying your thesis about democracy and sort of and liberty more broadly going hand in hand with artistic creation and, and flourishing. If you were to look at that thesis in today's society, which in the West is increasingly and hopefully the pendulum swings the other way on this, but is increasingly an illiberal liberal bastion. Do you suspect that artistic creation will decline proportionate with the growth of this sort of progressive, squelching creative and artistic freedom kind of mindset? I think it'll probably move to an unexpected place. And one of the most interesting examples from the last maybe 15 years is Ai Weiwei's bird's nest from the 2006 Olympiad in, in Beijing, because this was supposed to be an expression of China's embrace of the Greek tradition. I mean, the Olympics originating in ancient Greece, sort of a, a, a symbol of democracy. And Ai Weiwei, you know, a great artist and designer, is going to put up put up this this stadium that will imitate the monuments of ancient Greece. But after the Olympiad, he came out and said, "Look," he said, "this thing is a false smile. It's not real. These people are not." Uh, liberalizing in any way. And I mean, he's a very controversial figure, but I think the way he understood, both the way he had been exploited and what the PRC was all about, shows you that these forces are still at work. So it would be hard for me to predict precisely when it would, would appear again, but it does seem to me that given the spread of democracy and the fact that we now, when 70 years ago, Israel didn't exist, and Japan was a deadly enemy. We now have two terrific, vibrant, democratic allies there for the United States that we might look to either or both of them for places where the values that have produced these previous masterworks might resurface. 